This is a reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 30 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to detail him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And the voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Okay, good. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks, now. Thank you for those words. Um, picks up on a lot of what I'm speaking about this morning. So um, it's so good to be able to do this live so that we can be responding to the Spirit as we go. And hopefully um, what I'm about to say will confirm a lot of what God is already speaking to you about, particularly in terms of the unconditional love that we receive from God and that being the place that we work from. Just to say before I get into things uh, on Tuesday at 7.30pm, Hanel and I are hosting an evening for the black and ethnic minority family members of our church to talk specifically about our response to racism at St Peter's but also in our local community. So we would love you to come to that if you can and um, we'll do it socially distant here at the church building. Um, I'm very aware that some people can't come physically to the building or at the moment just don't want to because it's a little bit nerve-wracking because we're just coming out of lockdown so we will be doing um, some sort of hybrid of trying to do it uh, virtually as well on zoom so if you aren't able to come um, then please just email hello at stpetersbroccoli.org.uk and we will send you the zoom link for Tuesday night so that we can make sure that you're included and you join it and this will be the first of a number so it's not going to be the only one so if you can't come and you miss it don't worry we'll have more in September. So if you watch last week, you will know that I talked about the identity and the purpose of Jesus. And we look specifically at a passage in Luke 4 where Jesus outlines um, his purpose, his ministry, and says who he is. So for the first time, he says, I am the Messiah. I have come to bring heaven and earth back together again. And this is what it looks like. And you remember that we talked specifically about what good news to the poor actually meant because the people in the temple thought that Jesus had come to liberate them from the bad oppressors on the outside, the Roman Empire. They were the good people. They were doing everything right. They were going to temple every week. They were following all the regulations and the Roman oppressors were oppressing them and keeping them imprisoned and so they needed liberating. Jesus said instead, that's nothing to do with what I've come to do. I've come instead to liberate you from yourself because essentially you have imprisoned yourself. You have oppressed yourself and it's only the poor that really understand what I've come to do because it's the poor in spirit and also literally who realise that they have nothing else other than total surrender. They bring nothing to the table and it's only when we come to Jesus in total surrender that we come with open hands that he then fills us with his Holy Spirit. We receive the grace that we can get because of what he's done on the cross and we can be liberated. And so therefore when we surrender our lives to Jesus, even though we might be physically oppressed, even though we might be physically imprisoned, we feel free and we feel alive for the first time because of who he is and because of what he does in and through us as a result of the grace that he poured out on the cross and the power of his resurrection. So last week was left on a literal 
cliffhanger. So Jesus says this, the people in the temple go nuts. They drive him out of the temple to the edge of a cliff, intending to throw him over the cliff because they're so offended by what he said. And then Jesus walks on through the crowd and goes on his way. And then in the gospel narratives, we start to read Jesus living out that very manifesto that he just said he'd come to do. Healing the sick, freeing those who are demonically oppressed, going to the least and the last, those people have long since stopped trying to cover up their insecurities, long since stopped trying to cover up the fact that they are at a total loss and in need of saving. And then in all four accounts of Jesus' life, it takes an interesting turn as he starts to call people to come and follow him. And as he calls people to follow him, they're called disciples in the gospel narratives. What we realise as the story goes on is this isn't just about him doing it for his followers or him doing it for the poor. He expects his followers, once they've surrendered their lives to him, once they've given up everything to follow him, to then go and do exactly the same thing. In fact, Jesus' identity, Jesus' purpose is then exactly the same identity and the same purpose that the disciples, the followers of Jesus are then to take on. And so the question I want to ask this morning is, how did Jesus do what he did? If we as disciples, if we've given our life to Jesus, are supposed to be like Jesus, are supposed to do what he did, then how did Jesus do what he did? Because we need to learn how to do that in order to be able to live out our own identity, our own purpose on earth as Jesus did. And the usual Christian answer to how did Jesus do what he did is often because he was the son of God. Because he was the son of God. Now, I always hear that answer. I think that's incredibly unfair because what that essentially sounds like is Jesus was Jesus. He does these incredible things because of the power, because he was the son of God. And we are not Jesus and therefore we're totally unable. We're unable to be able to do what we're called to do and live out the calling that Jesus has got on our life. And of course, the real answer to how did Jesus do what he did is not just found in the fact that he is the son of God, because we know when we read the gospels that Jesus was both fully divine, fully God present on earth, but he was also fully human. So in many ways, he was the archetype. He is the person we look to as the model of what it means to be fully human. And so in order to be fully human, Jesus emptied himself of certain divine attributes. For example, he didn't know everything at one time, so he wasn't omniscient in the same the way God the Father was. He'd emptied himself of that divine attribute so as to fully identify with what it means to be human. He also wasn't everywhere at once. He limited himself to our time and space continuum so as to show what it looks like to be fully human. Some examples from the Gospels in Luke 2.52, Luke tells us that Jesus grew in understanding. That suggests that Jesus didn't know everything at once. In Matthew 8.10, we're told that Jesus Jesus was astonished. I don't think he was making it up. I think he was genuinely astonished because something surprised him. Later in Matthew 15, he asked his disciples how many loaves uh, the crowd have when he's feeding the 5,000. I don't think he's playing to camera at this point. I don't think it's for dramatic effect. I think he genuinely wanted to know how many loaves there were so that he could perform the miracle that God was asking him to perform. These were real questions and it suggests that Jesus emptied himself of these certain divine attributes so as to show us what it means to be fully human. So why did Jesus empty himself in this way? Well, really, it is because he wanted to show us what it means to be human. But so often, we don't really understand what it means to be human. So let me ask this. What do you think it means to be human? Because the Judeo-Christian answer to our identity as humanity might not necessarily be what we think 
it should be, and it's certainly not what secular culture would tell us it means to be human. Um, Genesis 1, verse 26, this is the most written about couple of verses in the entire Bible because it goes to the heart of the identity of humanity. It says this, Then God said, after creating everything, the heavens, the earth, the splendor, the animals, it says, God, um, let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them, and he blessed them, and he said, be fruitful, increase the number, fill the earth. Essentially, everything that you're enjoying here in Eden, take it out into the chaos of the earth, and bring heaven and earth together. We were co-creating with God. That was the original intention of what it means to be human. But the key thing I want to focus on there is image and likeness. God created us in his image and in his likeness. What does that actually mean? Well, it's quite difficult to understand what it means because those two words in the ancient Hebrew, image and likeness, aren't used that much in the Old Testament. In fact, when you do a comparative kind of study of those words in the Old Testament, they're almost exclusively used for referring to idols in ancient Near Eastern religions. So what theologians do when they really want to understand those words is they look at other ancient Near Eastern writing of the time to try and really understand what they mean. And the same is true of other in ancient Near Eastern literature. It's exclusively used for the creation of idols in foreign religions. Now, we probably don't have idols around so much anymore, at least not in the same way they would in ancient Near Eastern religions. But in those days, what they would do is they would carve huge statues out of wood and out of stone so as to represent the God that they worshipped. And then they would go through these really complex birthing rituals in order to birth this idol into being. And then they would feed the idol, literally feed the idol food and give the idol water. And they would put the idol in parts of their kingdom and also kingdoms and areas that they conquered for their own. And here's the point. The followers of ancient Near Eastern religions literally believed that those idols embodied the very power and the very presence of the God then whom the image they were made in the image of and of course that's tragic because those idols were mute and dumb and powerless and couldn't fulfill the purpose for which they were made now here's the point the writer of Genesis is writing this creation narrative as a polemic, as almost the anti-creation story of the creation stories of the time. And what the writer of Genesis is saying here is whereas the idols of ancient Near Eastern religions are not fit for purpose, they're mute, they're dumb, they're unable to do what they were created to do. Here's the difference with humanity. God, the one true God of Israel, the creator of the universe, creates humankind in God's image, God's likeness. And the difference is humanity can literally carry the power and the presence of the God. God of Israel, the creator of the universe. It's an incredibly profound point that he's making. And so therefore, what it means to be human is to carry God's presence. What it means to be human is to be carriers of God's power. And then as you read on in the creation narrative, Genesis 3, obviously we read about the fall and essentially the fall of Adam and Eve is them losing their identity. They're believing a lie that they could be like God when they already were like God. And as a, as a result, it sends humanity into this spiral of lost identity. And really, the story of the Old Testament, the people of Israel, is of them trying to recover their lost identity. And the mistake they make again and again and again is they're trying to recover their purpose and their identity in their own strength by fulfilling the law, by trying to do it themselves. And then, of course, we know Jesus bursts onto the scene. 
the first person to be fully human, fully divine, to embody what it means to be made in God's image and in God's likeness, to truly fulfill the purpose of humanity, to fill the earth with God's power and God's presence, to bring heaven and earth back together again. And of course, on the cross, he dies for everything that separates us from our true identity, everything that stops us from being able to also be made and realize that we're made in God's image and likeness. He takes it upon himself. He destroys the power of it. And last week, those who surrender themselves to him then take on the identity of Jesus. We live in Jesus, Jesus lives in us, and we can become who we were created to be again. So that's the theology, and that's good news. It's good news for those of us who feel like we're not able to do this in our own strength. It's good news for those of us who have surrendered to Jesus, but then read the Gospels, realise that we're supposed to be like Jesus and feel utterly powerless, feel like we can't actually do what we were created to do or what God is asking us to do. It's good news because we don't do it in our own strength. We do it in the strength and the power and the presence of Jesus who lives in us and we live in him. Worth also saying that we are the same as Jesus in kind and that we're made in his image and likeness, but we're different from him in degree because notice when Jesus became fully human, he didn't lay aside sinless perfection. And so therefore we will always fall short of our created identity. That's not the case as the father looks on us because he sees Jesus in all his gloriousness and purity. But as humanity, we fall and we tend to revert back to our old life. We believe lies from our old life and we don't believe the truth of who we are now. And so therefore, our experience of trying to be like Jesus can be enigmatic. And so that it feels like we're going backwards and forwards. But the whole point of Christianity is we're on this upward trajectory of becoming like Jesus. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And so therefore, we're beginning to understand the real truth of who we are which was true whether we do it or not and we're starting to live it out and we're starting to participate with God in bringing heaven and earth back together again so back to our original question how did Jesus do what he did this is going to form um, the content of the series that we're going to follow in the autumn term so we're going to spend time looking at what it means to be led by the Spirit. We're going to talk about what it means to be Jesus. What was Jesus like? I'm going to talk about how do we help other people be more like Jesus. So today really is just setting that up in the autumn term. Over August, um, we're going to focus on the Lord's Prayer and break that down, talk more about prayer, which would be brilliant. But just briefly, um, before we pray together, this is Matthew 3 um, that Daniel read. And this is the baptism of Jesus, another famous passage in the gospel narratives. And this is what happens, verse 13. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Um, John deterred, tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, but do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descend like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. So there's three things I think we can learn from the baptism of Jesus as we try to be like Jesus ourselves, as those who have surrendered our lives to him and want to be like him. And the first is that Jesus was obedient. Jesus understood what it meant to be obedient to his father in heaven. 
For example, verse 13 to 15, we read that he went to be baptized by John. And when John tries to deter him, tries to stop him, says, you don't need to be baptized. I need to be baptized by you. He says, let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. What's actually happening there? Well, Jesus didn't need a baptism as repentance. He was sinless. He didn't need to have be repent and go under the water and come up out of the water. He was perfect in every way, but he did it to be obedient. And as we read the gospel narratives, we realize he did it really as a symbolic act of what he was about to do on the cross as he takes upon himself all of our sin all of our own attempts to do life in our own strength all of the tendencies for us to screw things up to turn our lives in on itself and he took it upon himself and he destroyed the power of it on the cross and as you read the gospels you realize that Jesus had a lifestyle of obedience to God and this is one of the key ways that we are to emulate Jesus and to be able to be like him, his hands and feet on earth. For example, in Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 26, 39, uh, the most difficult part of the ministry of Jesus, he's waiting and he knows he's about to be crucified and he's in absolute agony, but he says to God, yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is perfectly obedient again and again and again. In John 5, he kind of lets us in to what happens between him and the Father. He says, by myself, I can do nothing. I only do what I see my Father doing. Jesus is totally reliant on the voice of his Father so that he can be obedient. How did Jesus do what he did? He was obedient. He listened to God and he did what God was telling him to do. So what does that mean for us? Well, firstly, probably a lot of us have to do away with unhelpful notions of obedience. Because a lot of us, I imagine, think of obedience as something that we do, even though we don't really want to do it, but somebody's telling us to do it, probably because they're coercing us to, or there's a reward at the end that we need to do in order to be able to do it. That has nothing to do with the kind of obedience that we see Jesus playing out in the Gospels, because his obedience is all about relationship with God. It's all about relationship with God as his father. And what we realize as you read the life of Jesus is as he's obedient, he fulfills his purpose. And we know, don't we, when we live a life of true purpose, the purpose that we were created to live our life in and through, then we start to experience the fullness of what it means to be alive. That's why Jesus says that he came to give us life in all its fullness, life to the full. Because as we're obedient, we don't suffer the whole time, although obviously it doesn't mean everything goes right and there are elements of it in which it's not about simply doing things for our own benefit, obviously. But in and amongst it all, the whole gambit of life, of the ups and downs, we feel fullness of life because we're living out our purpose on earth. So let's do away with unhelpful notions of obedience. Secondly, we need to learn how to hear what God is saying to us. We need to learn to hear his voice. That starts by reading the Bible. One thing you could try over the summer period, just read a little uh, passage of scripture. So you could start in the New Testament in Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. Just read one passage every day, every other day. And before you read it, why don't you say to God, would you speak to me through this tiny little passage I'm about to read? You'll be amazed at the way God speaks to us through the Bible. Jesus' life is characterized by prayer. We see again and again that he takes himself away so that he can spend time with God, his Father. And so he spends time praying and listening to God, and then he acts in obedience to what he feels like God's saying. We're going to have to learn how to hear God's voice, something we're going to focus on in the autumn term. During lockdown, um, it's really felt to be honest, like we've been leading the church blind. In so many ways, it's very hard to work out what to do when we're not meeting together physically or we're not doing our normal events 
during the week. And one of the best things I've learned during this lockdown period is to be able to simply focus on what I feel like God's asking me to do. To keep coming back to God and saying, God, I have no clue what to do right now. Would you speak to me specifically? And it's incredible. As you start to open the Bible, as you start to leave space in your life for him to speak to you, it's incredible how he speaks to you specifically about what it is that you're currently going through. And then obviously there's the obedience. You have to act to follow out what he's asking us to do. So how does Jesus do what he does? Firstly, he's obedient to God the Father. Secondly, he knew he was loved. Verse 17, a voice from heaven, God the Father said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. This is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. Jesus' ministry essentially hadn't started up until this point. So as far as we know, for 30 years of the life of Jesus, he did nothing remarkable. In fact, he did nothing worth writing anything about because it all starts at this point at which he's baptised. And then the ministry of Jesus, with which we're so familiar, starts to come out. Now, obviously, there's the miraculous events surrounding his birth. But as far as we know, for the rest of it, he was simply a carpenter's son learning his dad's trade. And then he's baptised. And then his ministry starts to happen. So therefore, it's, tr it's massively significant that God, right at the start of the ministry of Jesus, right at the start at which he starts to live out his purpose, God says to him, before he does anything, I love you and I'm proud of you. I love you and I'm proud of you. What does that mean? It means that Jesus wasn't working for love. He wasn't working for the pleasure of his father. He was working from it. He knew it before he even started. It's also how, when we read the Gospels, we realise that Jesus' ministry was always characterised by deep compassion. He's moved by pity so many times on uh, essentially people who are suffering, for people whom heaven and earth are so separate, they feel like they're suffering in a horrific way. It doesn't feel like heaven. His gut moves for them and he moves with compassion. The reason he's able to do that without being exhausted the whole time is because he knew that he was loved by the Father. He knew that he wasn't doing it in order to prove himself. So what does that mean for us? It means as we start to step out and try and be like Jesus, we have nothing to prove. It's the best truth we could ever possibly know. We have nothing to prove. And what does that mean? It means that we can fail. It means that we can fail in the most spectacular fashion because it doesn't change the way God views us. He still loves us. He's still proud of us. We start from that place. Everything we do after that isn't in an order to try and earn that from him. It's simply in response to what he already says over us and does for us. We have nothing to prove. And so it means we can take risks because faith, having faith, being able to be like Jesus is all about stepping out and taking risks. And then finally, so if it's about obedience, it's about knowing we're loved, unconditional love of the Father, about knowing his pleasure and his pride in us, despite us doing nothing. It's not about that. Thirdly, Jesus, how did he do what he did? He knew that he carried God's presence and power. He knew what it meant to be made in the image and likeness of God. So verse 16 says this. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. The spirit of God, the power, the presence of God comes and 
fulfills Jesus, and then he lives out his purpose and his identity on earth. And we see this power throughout his ministry, without limit, in fact. And it's in response to the long-cherished hope that we read about in the Old Testament, particularly from the prophets, as they're crying out that one day God will put his spirit upon someone and remain with them forever. Because the problem with the Old Testament is that God's power and God's presence seem to only come at particular times, in particular places, for particular people. And then it seemed like God removed his power and his presence from the people of God. Now, they were longing for a time when the Messiah would come, when God's power and presence would fully reside and stay with that person so that he could rescue them and liberate them so that they could become the people they were created to be. And Jesus is the person who does that for the first time. And he invites us to come to him to surrender our lives to him so that we too can be filled with his presence and his power. So what does that mean? It means that we have absolutely everything we need. In order to be like Jesus, we don't need to gain any more knowledge. We don't need to do any more things. We have everything we need right now if we surrendered our lives to him. He's filled us with his spirit. He lives in us. We live in him. He surrounds us. That means we don't need to read our Bible more in order to be able to be like Jesus. It helps, and it's part of our relationship with him, but it's not a prerequisite to us being able to be like him. It means that we don't need to pray more. It means that we already have what we need in order to be like Jesus. But when we do pray, we're able to actually move in the presence and the power of the Spirit because we're hearing the voice of the Father and we're being obedient. Those practices are about relationship. They're not about ticking boxes so we can perform. So this morning, some of us watching desperately need to hear the word of God, need to hear God's voice this morning. In a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to hear his voice. Some of us desperately need to know how much God loves us. And in a moment, we're going to ask God to show us how much he loves us. He loves to do that. And then some of us have absolutely no idea of the power of the spirit who lives in us and we live in him and the potential of what it is that he's calling us to do. And so why don't we spend a moment asking God for that now? Let's shut our eyes, open our hands out. I find it so sad that we can't be together to do ministry together and to be able to see God move because it's so beautiful to be able to watch the way that God, in response to things like this, when we ask him to speak to us, when we ask him to show us his love, when we ask him to reveal his power to us again and again and again, he falls in the most incredible way and he starts to meet with us. And it's so encouraging when you see that happening to people around you and it encourages us to open ourselves. But one thing I have been encouraged by during lockdown is the way so many people have written in and said, as I start to open myself like this, even in my own living room, which makes perfect sense because God's with us. He's not in a building. Even where I am, God starts to meet with me in the most incredible way. So that's what we're going to do right now. So let's shut our eyes, hold our hands out. So which camp are you in? Do you need to hear his voice now? Do you need to experience his love? Do you need to feel his power? When Jesus is teaching his disciples about how to pray, he ends a little bit of teaching by talking about the way that God loves to give good gifts to his children. He says that God is nothing like 
earthly fathers. In fact, Willie compares God to earthly fathers and said, even though earthly fathers, even though you are sinful, even though you're evil, even though your life is turned in on itself, tends to be about yourself, still earthly fathers know how to give gifts to their children. So then he says, how much more will God the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? How much more will God the Father speak to those who ask? How much more will God the Father show his love to those who ask? How much more will God the Father reveal his power to those who ask? So which is it for you? Which one do you need to ask for now? Let's just leave some space. Ask God for it. Come, Holy Spirit. Would you fill us now? Would you move in response to our prayer? We're open to you. Let's just wait. Sometimes when we experience God's love for the first time or after a long time of not experiencing, we start to weep when he starts to meet with us. So often that's just the release of the pain or the exhaustion of trying to earn favor, trying to earn love. And as he shows himself to us, as we begin to realize he loves us because he loves us because he loves us. It's like a burden is lifted. That's what you're doing, Lord, for everyone watching this now, opening themselves, we ask for more, more of your Holy Spirit. Would you pour out more of your love? Some people watching have been asked to do something by God and they're terrified of being obedient because they're not able to do it in their own strength. It's well beyond their own capabilities. If that's you, just ask for God to remind you of his power right now. That with God, nothing is impossible. Just reveal your power. Feel your people, with your power, Father.
ഇതുകൊണ്ട് Bless what you're doing. Increase what you're doing. That's for more of your presence. Somebody watching you struggles with anxiety and says, the Lord's just lifting that anxiety from me now. But that tension in your stomach is going to go now in the name of Jesus. Speak healing over your body. Tightness in your shoulders, relax now in the name of Jesus. This is what we're here for, Lord. We're here to meet with you. We're here to be reminded of your truth and of your love and of your power. This is another thing I'm reminded of. Some of us who have become Christians during lockdown, who have done that act of surrendering to God, of giving your life to God. And I feel led to remind you, or even just tell you if you don't know, that part of us surrendering our life to God is being obedient to Jesus by getting baptized. Like Jesus says, believe and be baptized. And baptism is just a symbol of what's already happened in your heart as you've given your life to Jesus. It's something you do in front of the whole church family as you're dunked underwater. And it's a symbol of dying to your old life a life that is centered on you and yourself and trying to do things in your own strength and being raised again in life in Christ. Um, so everyone, just keep meeting with God. If, if you have become a Christian in the last four months, or if you've not been baptized and you consider yourselves a Christian, you've surrendered your life to Jesus, I think we need to do baptisms in September when we come back. So if you could email me, ben at stpetersbroccoli.org.uk just ben at stpetersbroccoli.org.uk and I'd love to tell you more about baptism and meet with you and we'll have baptisms in the autumn term. Let's sing a song of worship. If you're meeting with Jesus, just keep meeting with him. Don't need to sing, just let the music wash over you and we'll sing and then we'll finish up. <laughs>